We have, uh, we've just come through the book of Genesis together. You remember how pretty early on in uh, Abraham's life, really, uh, God put him into a deep sleep, like the sleep that he put Adam into when he took what would become Eve from Adam's body. He, took, he put Adam, Abraham into a deep sleep, and the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants, your offspring, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, Abraham, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And last week, we saw the transition that occurred over the course of a few generations. Uh, That small clan, 71 strong, becomes a great horde of people in in the midst of Egypt. And how did that happen? Well, God was faithful. He was faithful to the promise that he had made to Abraham to give him abundant offspring. And, And that faithfulness of God, I don't know if you... If you remember us talking about that Hebrew word, I don't do that a lot, but it's such an important Hebrew word uh, in the Bible, and it doesn't have a very good English equivalent. Um, But do you remember the word chesed? Uh, it's, It's loyalty. It's fidelity. It's, uh, it's what's natural between a child and his mom or dad or his siblings. and it, it, It's what a husband and a wife commit to together. Fidelity to one another and to their promises. Well, chesed, fidelity, faithfulness, is at the heart of who God is. As he reveals himself to us in the pages of Scripture, he is faithful and true. And he's committed himself to us. But you know, as the book began, we met a man who did not understand chesed. He didn't understand fidelity. We, we meet a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And what that means is he felt no sense of duty or obligation to Joseph. He wouldn't show the Hebrews any chesed. The enemy has a heart of ice and stone. I call him the enemy because that's the role that this man, this Pharaoh, comes to play in the Scriptures. Uh, This man is emblematic of Satan himself. Um, Or if you're familiar with the category of a type in the Bible, uh, then just as Moses is a type of Christ, you might say that this Pharaoh is a type of the evil one. We were uh, introduced to him as he became alarmed at the number of Hebrews in his midst, so he subjected them to slavery, made their lives bitter in the hopes that uh, maybe the birds wouldn't get together with the bees or something, but it doesn't work. Um, So the more they were abused, the more they multiplied. Uh, So Pharaoh tries to get the midwives to kill the baby boys as they were being born, but it doesn't help because the midwives don't do it. And as our text ended last week, Pharaoh has just called for the mass extermination of baby Hebrew boys 
just as Herod is going to later attempt uh, in his attempt to get Jesus many centuries later, uh, the enemy is bent on destroying God's work and God's people. And now a genocidal decree has gone out that the Egyptians should take the baby boys and uh, cast them into the Nile River by force if necessary. And let's take up the story in chapter 2, verse 1. If you've got a copy of God's Word with you, let me invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. We'll start with the first 10 verses. Exodus 2, 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And as his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. I like the ESV. I do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the version that I generally use. Uh, But it is not perfect. And while uh, I wouldn't want the job of a translator, um, For a version like this, that doesn't mean that I can't note where I think uh, they could have done better. Um, Look at verse 2. When she saw that he was a fine child. Now, that's not a bad translation, uh, and yet it conceals something that we're meant to see. Um, So it's less than ideal. In the creation narrative, at the end of each creation day... Do you remember what God said? He said it was good. He would see that it was good. Well, very woodenly translated, verse 2 of our text reads, and when she saw him, that he was good. So this is an allusion to creation. This boy is, in some limited sense, a new Adam. Now, we know... Our theology is good. We know that there are only two Adams, a first man and a second man, Adam and Jesus Christ. Paul establishes that very clearly for us in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. But here we're getting hints about what God is doing in the big scheme of things. God is going to create a new creation within the old. That is, God's going to bring about a a humanity that is not ruined by the fall. That's us, all of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have been born again. 
That's why walking with Jesus can be described as putting off the old man and putting on the new. So that's the first place I wish the ESV had done a little better job. The other one is found in the next verse, verse 3. The word that the ESV translates basket, it's only used in two places in the Scriptures. Uh, It's what this box that Moses is put in is called. And it's also the name of the box that Moses and his family floated in on the waters of the flood. So basket's not a bad translation as far as you picturing what's happening, but it hides that connection to Noah that you are meant to see. This time Moses is picking up on another type, another pattern that is developing and will find fulfillment in Christ. That is, he fills a pattern that was opened by Noah. And just as Noah was brought safely through the waters of judgment, so is Moses. Here is a child, and then later, when, like Noah, he's going to lead God's new creation through the waters of judgment on dry ground while the Egyptians perish in them. And just like Noah is told to do, so his mother coats her baby's ark with tar to waterproof it. She puts her baby down uh, and sets him in the reeds. Now, what's the plan? Have you ever thought about that? What's the plan? We're not told. His older sister, we'll come to know her as Miriam later, sat watch. I I don't know uh, what they thought would happen, though. And I don't know whether they took shifts or not. You know, it doesn't read that way, and I would think... Moses' mom would have just been distraught and at home, probably. But his sister watches from a distance and then approaches the princess with a really bold suggestion. And I love the irony here. The sense of humor and the compassion of God, all wrapped into one here as he plants the seed of Pharaoh's destruction within his own home and lets lets Moses' mom get paid to nurse him. So on a broad level, we see what's happening, right? God is sovereign, and and God remembers his people. God uh, remembers his promise. This Pharaoh, you know, the Pharaoh whom Joseph knew, he blessed Israel, right? I mean, I know that Jacob blessed him, and the, the lesser is blessed by the greater, but Pharaoh was good to Joseph and his family, and, uh, and he prospered, just like the promise to Abraham said. You remember what God said to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you. Well, this Pharaoh doesn't do that. And God's promise goes on. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, this Pharaoh subjects them to slavery and is now attempting to kill them all by genocide. Is that holding Israel in honor? No. And so him who dishonors God will Israel, God will curse. Um, so that, you know, that's what God's, God's uh, planting the seeds of destruction in his own home. But God is using the compassion of three ladies to win the victory. You know, that to undo the plans of Pharaoh. That's what Jesus came to do, was to undo the, the works of the, of the devil, right? And uh, 
we get hints that God, that's what God's doing even now through humble means. So we've met our hero, Moses. And many years go by, Acts 7, Stephen tells us that 40 years passed between that voyage, his voyage in the, that little ark and, and what happens next. And, Mo, and he tells us that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and deeds. So what happens next? Well, our hero falls. Uh, we're kind of used to that by now, having come through Genesis. Uh, so far, we've watched God take fearful Abraham and teach him to trust. We've watched him take lying, cheating, selfish Jacob and teach him to trust. And now we're going to watch him take zealous but arrogantly misguided Moses and teach him to trust. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Moses heard, I'm sorry, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Egypt, from Pharaoh, and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So what's going on? Well, Moses has righteous indignation here. It, it, it's not good that the Hebrew was beating the Israelite, and Moses is angry about it, and that's right. Um, but in that righteous indignation, he then sins grievously. Um, today, we'd convict him of premeditated murder. When the book of Hebrews praises Moses in that hall of faith, Hebrews 11, it's not praising his murder of the Egyptian, but rather his identification with the oppressed people of God rather than with the opulence of of his position in, in Egypt. So that part was good. And it's praised in the book of Hebrews. The problem that the book of Hebrews is not interested in, but we are, is that he takes vengeance in his own hands. That's the problem. There's a second problem in that he takes it upon himself to do this. And uh, he does it with malice aforethought. And he knew it was very wrong when he did it. How do I know that? Well, he looked this way and that to make sure no one was seeing what he was doing. And then when he did it, he hid the evidence. So he knows that what he's done is wrong. And of course he got caught. caught. Be sure your sin will find you out. Of course he got caught. God's not going to let him get away with this. I mean... God has promised to bring the Israelites out of bondage. God promised that they would be in bondage and that he would bring them out with great possessions and bring them home. God will get the glory. So, of course, this attempt will fail. I mean, think about it. What if it had succeeded? What was the plan? Presumably, 
Moses was trying to start what Pharaoh feared most, a, a, a slave uprising. But that's not how God's going to gain victory and deliver us. That's how the flesh thinks, not the spirit. Moses looks at his situation, positioned as he is in Egypt, equipped with as he is with strength and with education, position, but you know, he, he's living in luxury while his brothers are oppressed, subjected to hardship. And I'm sure he reasoned, well, God must have put me here for a reason. And out of that righteous indignation, mistreatment of his brothers, God's people, he acts according to his own fleshly wisdom. But now when two Israelites are fighting and Moses tries to intervene for peace, the aggressor, that's the one who turns on Moses. But that's also what the author of Hebrews is after, how God's people are never going to notice or recognize, how Israel has a tendency not to recognize God's saviors. But uh, that's what he's saying when Moses supposed his brothers would realize that God was saving them them through him. So what he did was driven by compassion for his brothers, and what he did was bold, it was zealous, But God hasn't called Moses yet. So it's misguided. God hasn't told Moses to execute justice for him. Certainly not to kill for him. That's not how God is going to win his victory. Not as the killer, but the killed, ultimately. So until God calls and equips Moses, Moses can't deliver God's people. Until Moses understands humility, finds humility, he can't lead God's people. And the fact of the matter is, he can't deliver God's people anyway. Nor should he take vengeance. That belongs to God. So, we see early Moses. Mighty and zealous, but misguided. Pharaoh hears about it and gives orders for his death. So he flees. He flees to Midian, and the text tells us that he was afraid. So what did we do with <laughs> Hebrews eleven twenty seven, where the author tells us he didn't fear. He didn't flee out of fear of the king's wrath. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 14 tells us, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Now this isn't the sermon on Hebrews. But uh, the author there is making the point that Moses identified with the oppressed people of God rather than enjoying the pleasures of minor royalty in Egypt, and he suffered for it. And, And that's true. There's a lot in the hall of faith of Hebrews that's really interesting, you know. We often find it highlights our heroes as victorious just when you and I, reading the Old Testament stories, go... Doesn't that look like just where they failed? But again, this isn't a sermon on Hebrews, so I'll leave it there for you to chew on. Moses flees to Midian. Midian is uh, it's over on the western side of Saudi Arabia, so that's where he goes. And where does he sit down, or where does he settle? It's the same Hebrew word. He sits by a well. Now, just as Moses has evoked pre-fall Adam when his mother saw that he, he was good, right? And just as he has evoked post-flood Noah, um, 
Now he evokes Isaac and Israel, both of whom found their wives at a well, if you remember. And Jacob, or Israel, um, he did so by a great feat of strength, if you remember. There was a great well, uh, rock over the well mouth that had to be moved by a team of people. Jacob just went and did it by himself. Well, let's watch Moses take up that pattern. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so, home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us up out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, so you notice the pattern, but notice the reversal too. Moses is the one who serves the girls in the water when he fills their troughs. You remember how Rebecca um, had not, she didn't stop filling the troughs with water until the camels had finished drinking. Uh, and, you know, as the, the chosen bride of the chosen firstborn son, she is emblematic of the church, right? She is the church. So she set a pattern for us of, of being uh, servant-minded, hardworking, and selfless. Well, now Moses does that. Yes, as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Moses sets the pattern for us here. He, he doesn't just drive the shepherds away and let the ladies get their water. He, he serves them as he saves them. But you see how imposing a man Moses must have been. And these are multiple shepherds. It's not one bully. Uh, there's a reason shepherds were not well liked in the ancient world. They could be brash, brutish, and rude. And these are. Uh, they come drive off the ladies. They let the ladies fill the troughs with water, and then they run them off. But this man, one man, he stands up, and he delivers them. He's an imposing dude. Well, these girls get home and their dad's like, what are you thinking, leaving the guy there? I mean, he has just done us a very great kindness. He deserves at least a meal and a thank you. Verse 21, again, verse 21 could be translated better. It's not so much that he was content, like, okay, I'll dwell here. It's more a, 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 a commitment of his will. It's willingly. He was willing to live there. He, he has put Egypt behind him. Now, Ruel, this gets really confusing, and we won't, we won't get in the weeds here because we're going to have to deal with a genealogy, and there's a lot of fun stuff, and we'll try to pile it all in at once. Uh, but Ruel's probably not the, the dad father. He's the, the grandfather. He's the head of the, the household at the time. We're going to find Jethro is... Uh, is is, is Moses' father-in-law. Um, and then it gets even more confusing if you get to judges where there's another guy. But So, so Zipporah, she bears Gershom. And that's where we're going to leave the, the text for now. What is the takeaway? Why is this here? Well, first, the Israelites are oppressed, 
And then the daughters of Midian are oppressed. And in each case, Moses intervenes. He kills the Egyptian, which is bad. He delivers the girls, which is good. In each case, word of his deed gets out. Pharaoh hears. Priest of Midian hears. And in each case, there's a response. Pharaoh puts out a death warrant driving Moses out of Egypt. And this Midianite family welcomes him in to settle in Midian. So we're, we're seeing two events in Moses' life set in contrast to one another. Um, so I think we're being treated to Moses' discipleship, the, the change that happens in Moses. Moses is going to be called the most humble man ever. He doesn't start that way. But the Lord does bring him there. Uh, after 40 years of stewing over his brother's mistreatment, he acted only to be rejected by his own people which is a pattern we'll see in the scriptures. So after 40 years of training in Egypt, then he goes to seminary in the wilderness where he learns how to shepherd God's people as a shepherd, a real shepherd of sheep. You know, guys, speaking to you men here, men and boys, Moses has all the, the traits that we aspire to, doesn't he? I mean, he's courageous, he's bold, he's strong. I mean, he's, he's very imposing. But, you know, we see him use that courage and that zeal and that strength in two very different ways, don't we? In the one instance, he becomes the predator. God gave you courage and strength. Those masculine qualities are for saving not crushing. God's taking a bold and rash man, cocksure and strong, and he's bringing him low, and he'll do that to us. So that rather than exalting himself, he might exalt God. And so to find real, true strength, real and true courage what masculinity is supposed to be. Real strength is the strength that moves mountains or parts seas. Not by might, not by strength, says the Lord. He does not use horses to save. God is going to claim the victory. And God is going to get the glory. He is raising up a leader but he's raising up a leader who will point us to himself. You know, Jesus is the one like Moses who was going to reveal the Father fully. Our hero here, he's learning obedience through the things that he suffers for now. You know, God is humbling him so that he might lead God's people by, pump, by pointing to God. That part's for me, in a way, brothers and sisters, though I'm sure it has application for you too. But if I get arrogant, correct me gently, because I don't want to be. I know that I can be, and I don't want to be. But if you find yourself beneath a stubbornly arrogant shepherd, 
find another shepherd. Because we see the sort of shepherd that God himself is, don't we? He sent us his very image, the image of his whole character in the person of his son, the good shepherd. So there is a, uh, there's a lot in this passage, a lot in this book that's fascinating. And, and we can sort of see what it points to. I'm not exactly sure what the takeaway is other than love the Lord and just revel in the gospel. Embrace the gospel with joy and zeal. We see that God is making a new creation within the old. Destroying the works of the devil. We see the, the, the hero brought through the waters. And then we're going to see him bring the church through the waters. We're, we're getting a picture or a pattern of what God is doing in redemption. Or how about the bride at the well? Such a consistent image in the scriptures. Um, we know that the bride is us in this imagery. Um, chosen bride of the firstborn son, just we, as we are the bride of Christ, then the bride of Israel, the bride of Moses. I, I think finally, too, we ought to take note that God is faithful to save, but this isn't comfortable, but it's true. God is faithful to save, but the timing of his salvation is his to determine and not ours. Many of our brothers and sisters lived and died by faith in Egypt awaiting the Lord's, the arrival of Moses. God is faithful. He is sovereign. He is good. That doesn't mean we will always like his providence. And look how God does things and learn from it. He doesn't use a bold and zealous act of brutality. Rather, he marshals the compassion of three women. Same boldness, same zeal, no violence. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. So be strong, but be kind. And find that strength through faith. Point to God in your thoughts, in your words, in the things that you do. Put Jesus Christ at the center and relish the fact that God is powerful and faithful and has determined to disciple you in righteousness. To give you strength, to give you understanding, to give you patience, to give you humility. And if that means taking you from the lap of luxury and making you a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years, if that's what he has to do, that's what he'll do. In short, he is going to give you the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's the takeaway. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, you are glorious. We look at the, the, your plan over thousands of years and we marvel we marvel lord that you know the end from the beginning and that you work your plan with with uh, such hints along the way father we we see your character you are gentle you would not snuff out a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed and you've set your love on us father teach us to love like you love and to have that strength and that confidence that, that we need not let our flesh 
stir us to wrath, but that we might put off the old man, embrace that calm, confident love that is ours in Christ Jesus. We ask it for Christ's sake.